Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> We've got more, more good stuff coming. We get to hear from God's Word. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn in it to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews 8, which we'll be reading in a minute. We're thinking through this letter that was written to the first century church, and we're in a section right now that is a long description of the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. The concept of Jesus as a priest came up in chapters 2 and 4, and then in chapter 5, the, the writer began to expound on it, took a little detour, then jumped back into it in chapter 7, which is the, 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 the whole theme from 7 all the way through 10... 18. <clears throat> so four chapters plus, all about the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. So we're in the thick of that. <clears throat> we're in chapter 8. What we're going to do is read all, all 13 verses, and then uh, I will endeavor with the Lord's help to explain it, because it's a little dense and complicated in points. So let's do that. Let's listen to what God says to us this morning, and then I'll pray. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises for if that first covenant had been faultless there would have been no occasion to look for a second for he finds fault with them when he says behold the days are coming declares the lord when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. 
and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray. We need your help, Lord, to jump the distance between today and 2,000 years ago when this was written. And we know that your Holy Spirit is here among us to do that, to give us illumination, to show us your glory in what was written long ago because it is still relevant, because you are still here, the principles are still in power. And so, Lord, build up your church today as you intended to do then with this chapter. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the question that I want to start with is one that might be on many of your minds as we read this chapter. What does any of this have to do with me? Priestly rituals, a tent that Moses sent, set up, a, a covenant. Um, I don't know how that applies to my job this week or child raising or my financial problems. Uh, why, why this? This happened thousands of years ago around the other side of the world. In fact, how is it even relevant to the first century Christians to whom it was written? Because if, if you've been following us in Hebrews, you know that it was written to Christians in the first century who were facing two kinds of troubles. One was just the problems that are common to man, sickness, financial insecurity, fears about what the Romans were going to do, the governing authorities at that time. But the other trouble that they faced was opposition and persecution for their faith. In chapter 12, these Christians are told to consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. They, they were tempted to grow weary and be faint-hearted because of hostility against them for their following Christ. So why so much focus on the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ? Why do we need four chapters on this? Surely four chapters could have been spent with something more practical, like how do you cope with not having enough money to pay your bills? (laughs) Or how do you handle it when you are spoken of as evil because of your association with Jesus Christ? You know, why not give me some help with that? Well, how about four chapters on that? That's what my inclination would be. Well, the answer, which is God's answer, is that four chapters and more on the priestly ministry of Christ is what we need to cope with the trials of life and with persecutions. God is the one who chose this topic and how much time to spend on it. And he chose it in the full understanding of what these Christians were dealing with. And he says, here's what you need to know. Uh, the, The whole letter, but in that letter, I want four chapters on what Jesus Christ has done for you. And it's under this term, priesthood. But that, that communicates something that you absolutely have to know if you're going to, to live in this world of trouble and woe. 
You need to hear this. This is God's way of strengthening us today and for the challenges that we face. Now, how does it do that? What's the connection between the priesthood of Christ and your problems? Let me just try and put it simply. The most essential thing that we need in life is good relations with God, our Creator. God is the author of life. God rules over everything. He rules over everything that can affect us. So if God's on your side, then you can get through everything. But to have good relationships with God, there has to be a mediator because our sin prevents good relations with God. Our sin is an offense against Him. We don't do His will. We don't follow Him. And Isaiah 59.2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Good relations with God aren't possible if we have unforgiven sin in our life. And so, priests make possible good relations with God. The whole idea of the priesthood was to have a mediator, somebody who steps into the gap between us and God to reconcile us to Him. And that reconciliation always comes by way of a sacrifice for sin, a payment that satisfies God's justice and removes the offense of our wrongdoing. That's why the priesthood existed. And Jesus is the person who performed the priestly function that brings us into good relations with God by His own sacrifice of His life on the cross. He's the one that all the old rituals were pointing to. So why four chapters on the priesthood of Jesus? It's because it takes that long and even longer to see how thoroughly Jesus has restored us to good relations with our Creator, to know the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God through Christ is a confidence builder that can get us through anything. God knows your strength and mind to face the natural and cultural challenges of our day will not come through getting the right politicians put in place. It will not come from trying to turn public opinion in the favor of the church. It will not come from trying to preserve our freedoms and avoid suffering. It will only come through pressing into the work of Christ on our behalf. And in that knowledge, embracing with faith and with joy all the promises of God that are yes to us in Jesus. God knows how to get us through. And so that's why we've got these chapters. So let's look again at Jesus, our high priest. Chapter 7 last week was a comparison between the priesthood of Jesus and this mysterious guy named Melchizedek, way back when. Now this chapter is a comparison between the priesthood of Jesus and that of the priests of Israel. 
And in the comparison, we see just how amazing his priestly work is on our behalf, as many as trust in him as Savior. So we'll just unpack two comparisons from this text. The first one is this. The priests of Israel brought sacrifices into a tent, but Jesus brought his sacrifice into heaven itself. The priests of Israel brought sacrifices into a tent, but Jesus brought his sacrifice into heaven itself. So listen to the description of the priests of Israel from the first part of our passage Here's what we're told beginning in verse 3. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Now remember what those were for. They were for atonement for sin. They were to make things right between sinful man and holy God. In chapter 7, verse 27, it says, The priest offers sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. So the sacrifices were for removing the offense of sins against God. So the priest goes into the tabernacle or the tent that's erected as a holy place. It's a a place on earth that represents the presence of God. And he goes in there with a sacrifice, an animal whose life has been given up instead of the person or people who have committed sins. And then this is the procedure that God prescribed for remaining in good relations with him as a member of his chosen people, Israel. You do these things, and I will dwell among you and bless you in all your ways. But as you've probably already thought, there's something about an animal sacrifice brought into a tent that doesn't seem to be quite the right prescription (laughs) for dealing with human sin. I mean, how can taking the life of a goat or a sheep or a bull somehow be an equal exchange for my life? How can human human guilt be atoned for that way? And that's a question that gets taken up in the next two chapters, 9 and 10. But for now, the writer just deals with the issue by showing us the big picture. Verse 5 says this. They, that is the priests, serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So the writer is saying this whole business of bringing an animal sacrifice into the tent for forgiveness of sins, that was a copy or a shadow of heavenly things. The rituals, they they do what they're supposed to do, which is keep people in right standing with God, but they're only copies of something that's heavenly, something that's unseen. They're like shadows of an object of real substance, and we can see the shadow, but we can't see the real thing that's casting the shadow. Even the tabernacle or the tent itself was only after a pattern. It was a place on earth that people could see, but it was patterned after a place that is located in the heavenly realms. 
So putting it all together, here's what we know. This says that real atonement, genuine forgiveness of sin, happens not by earthly priests in an earthly tent. It happens by a heavenly priest in a heavenly tent, one that is unseen. It's in heaven where the real transaction of forgiveness and reconciliation takes place, and the earthly ritual is just a copy of it, a shadow of it. Let me attempt some illustrations to get the, the sense of this. If you go to Dave and Buster's over on Highway 25 and uh, Colorado Boulevard, you know, that's the massive game room, basically, uh, place to get your adrenaline worked off. Uh, so you can go in there with you and your buddies, and you can go and sit down at one of these arcade games, which is uh, racing against each other. So you can all sit in a seat, and you all have your own steering wheel, and you've got this big video screen, so you're all looking at the same track. And you can sit in there. You've got a gas pedal. You've got a brake. Um, you might even have a seat that turns as you're making turns and goes over up and down, makes you feel like you're driving. You can go and do that. You can race against your buddies, and you can have all this adrenaline feel of driving and racing against each other, but it's not the real thing, is it? <laughs> to get the real thing, you actually have to get outside into a car and drive on a real road. The game is a copy of something else. Or maybe a different illustration. When you were a kid, you might have uh, played doctor. You might have uh, convinced your sibling to act injured. <laughs> Or maybe you injured them and then you actually played on them. I don't know. But you had your fake stethoscope. Maybe you had this fake white lab coat or something. And you said, here, and you wrap this handkerchief around their broken arm. And, and you play doctor, right? But you know it's not the real thing. There are real doctors somewhere else who fix real broken arms. And you're, you're pretending like that. It's, it's, a, it's a copy. It's a pattern. It was like that with the priesthood. It's not that what they did in the tent was fake or pretend. God did say that by doing these things, the people would remain in good relations with Him. But what they were doing there wasn't the substance. It was a copy. It was a shadow of the real thing, the real atonement by a different priest in a different place. And that priest is Jesus, and that place is the heavenly realms. Verses 1 to 3 speak about this. We have such a high priest, one who is exalted at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man, for every priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. This is all referring to Jesus. Like earthly priests, this priest, who is Jesus, also has something to offer before God. What is it? It's his own life in payment for our sin. His sacrifice, it took place on the cross, but where did He take that sacrifice? Where are the holy places in which He is a minister 
Well, it's the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. It's in the inner chamber with God in heaven, sitting at His right hand, the right hand of majesty in heaven. That is where the atonement was made. This is the substance of which the earthly earthly priestly rituals were just a shadow. Jesus' death on the cross was no copy of anything. It is the real thing. It doesn't just point to an atonement that makes us right with God. It is the atonement that makes us right with God. There on an earthly cross, a transaction was made that fully satisfies the requirements of heaven. Nothing more needs to be done. Our minister, our priest, Jesus, has restored good relations with God to all who receive this by faith. On the cross is where he cried out, it is finished. And now and forevermore, this same Jesus, resurrected and ascended to heaven, seated at the right hand of God, he remains evermore the satisfaction for our sins. Because there the nail marks, which are permanent, are always before God. And they always remind him the debt is paid in full. That's the substance of which the earthly rituals were just a copy. That's the real atonement that guarantees the acceptance and the love and the help of God for you every day and in every trial. So when you're tempted to despair because of the troubles of life, Where do you find strength? Where do you find confidence to carry on? Well, you remember that Christ has entered heaven itself and secured by His blood the blessing of God on your life. Even when you suffer, and you will suffer, there will still be blessing. There will still be help in time of need. You will be upheld by the everlasting arms until the day when you are brought into the renewed world where there will be blessing without suffering. That's the first observation, the first comparison. There's even more to say. Let's continue. Let's go deeper. Here's the second comparison. The priests of Israel mediated a covenant which had a fault. But Jesus mediates a covenant that is faultless. The priests of Israel mediated a covenant which had a fault, but Jesus mediates a covenant that is faultless. So verses 6 and 7 introduce this concept to us. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now, we're looking at the superiority of Christ's priesthood over that of Israel through the lens of what's called a covenant. Two covenants are spoken of here. There's a first covenant that is old, 
And then there's the second one, which is new, and called in verse 13, the new covenant that makes the first one obsolete. Now, what are these two covenants, and how do the priests fit into the picture? Let's start by defining the word covenant. A covenant is a binding agreement between two parties that lists the terms and the conditions of the relationship. It's an agreement, two parties, here's what we'll do. So, I make certain commitments to you, you make certain commitments to me. It's all legal, it's all right there. That's a covenant. Best picture of that probably in our experience is marriage vows. The groom pledges his faithfulness and his love till death do us part, and the bride does the same thing for the groom, and then they put rings on their fingers as a sign and a reminder that this is the covenant we have made. Now, in this case, the covenant is between God and man particularly between God and the people that He has chosen to be in close relationship with Himself. There was a first covenant and then a second one, and the second one made the first one obsolete. Both of them had terms and conditions about the relationship between God and His people, and each covenant had a mediator. Uh, In this case, a go-between who ensures that the covenant is carried out as agreed and that good relations remain between God and man, and that mediator is the priest. Now, let's look at the Old Covenant and see what it was. It's, called, it's what we call the Mosaic Covenant because it was given to Israel through Moses. Verse 9 says, God made this covenant with them on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So that's a reference to the time when God rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. It parted for them. They went through it. They got to the other side. They go on into the, into the desert for a while. They come to Mount Sinai. And there on Mount Sinai, God brings them what we call the law, Mosaic law, but also it's called the covenant. Um, God's, God wrote tab commandments on stone. And Moses carried them down the mountain. He gave him other things that were instructions. He wrote them on some sheepskin or something. And then he read all of that to the people. And this became known as the book of the covenant in Exodus 24-7. So what were the terms of the covenant? Well, God's commitment, his side of it, was this from Exodus 6-7. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. That's his promise. Then the people, they have a covenant also in this. They have a commitment in this covenant, which is from Exodus 24, 7. They say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. That's their side. And this obedience to God is entirely in man's best interest because, as Paul said, In Romans 7, 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So as long as both sides keep their part of this agreement, all is well. God's people enjoy the presence and the blessing of God. But there was a problem. Our passage says this first covenant wasn't faultless. It had a weakness. It had a deficiency. 
There was occasion to look for a second. So what was wrong with it? Where was the fault? The answer is in verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, For he finds fault with them. (laughs) With them, the people who said, All that you have spoken we will do, and we will obey. Verse 9, They did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. In other words, God kept his part of the agreement, but the people didn't keep theirs. They opted out. They disobeyed. To use the marriage analogy, they broke their vows. They committed adultery by leaving the Lord and running after other gods. And as you see the history of Israel play out in the Old Testament and in Kings and Chronicles, you see this downward spiral into sin where the Lord finally gives them over into captivity to Assyria and Babylon. And for all practical, practical purposes, the nation of Israel just ceases to exist. He showed no concern for them in the end because they broke the covenant. The fault in the covenant was man's half of the agreement. Man, humans, us... We don't have the inherent ability to be faithful to the Lord. As Paul would say in Romans 7, 18 about our natural condition, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. That's where the fault is. So if there was only the first covenant between God and the people that he calls to himself, none of us has a chance to be right with God. We can't maintain our relationship with him. We don't have the ability to keep the promise, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Any covenant that requires our doing what is right is going to fail because we are failures. But here's where the grace of I must have done something. Battery, I don't know. Okay. 
Hand mic. Whoa, whoa, that worked. Okay, maybe this will work. Maybe this will work. Okay. Hang on. All right. I was about to say, here's where the grace of God comes into play. <laughs> Let's get to that. That's the good stuff. It was always his plan to have a second covenant. He never really had a plan B. He always had a plan A. But the first covenant was to make us appreciate the one that was coming. It was always the Lord's plan to replace the shadows with the real thing, to save people to himself by means of a covenant that can't be broken, not even by us. Let's look at the new covenant. We see it in verses 8 to 12. And these are a quote from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. And it begins with this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, it's really important to know the context in which that was originally said. That was a, a, a word, a promise from God through Jeremiah the prophet, at the very end of the big downward spiral of Israel. After centuries had gone by, they'd rebelled against God, didn't obey, didn't keep their promise to Him, and so it just kept getting worse and worse and worse over centuries until finally the northern kingdom of Israel gets captured and carried away by Assyria, and then the southern kingdom of Judah, which is where Jeremiah was a prophet, it's right on the verge of being totally destroyed and carried away by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. This is at the very end. This is at the last gasp of life in what was originally this favored nation called after God's own name. And then in the middle of when things are at their darkest, when all seems to be lost, God makes this promise of a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And this promise is not going to just be for the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the nation of Israel. This promise is going to be for all who are the spiritual descendants of Abraham, the true spiritual Israel that consists of all who trust in Israel's Messiah, this covenant is going to go beyond the Jews. It's going to include the non-Jews from every tribe and people and nation who gets in on it. And this covenant has three main promises. Promises which are better than the ones in the first covenant. Better because they are the real substance of good relations with, with God, which the Mosaic covenant was only a shadow. So let's look at the three promises. The first one is this. God will give us a new heart. God will give us a new heart. Amen. Yeah, amen. Verse 10. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, here's what's different. In the Old Covenant, the laws were written on stone and on sheepskin, but in the New Covenant, they're written on our hearts. That doesn't mean we'll just get really good at memorizing Scripture. <laughs> they memorized plenty of Scripture <laughs> back in the Old Covenant. 
They had a lot of it down. It doesn't mean that. It means God is going to transform our hearts to embrace His guidance, His direction, and His instruction. Instead of just laws imposed from without, they will be from a transformed heart that delights to do His will. This isn't anything less than the promise of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. The parallel text is Ezekiel 36, 27, where the Lord says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I'm going to do something internal. I'm going to make you love to obey my word. I'm going to make you see how beautiful it is. I'm going to make you thrive in it and say, this is what I want to do. It won't be just imposed by threats and reward. It's going to be an internal thing that's going to make you lean in my direction and be faithful to me. It doesn't mean sinlessness. And we'll get to that in the third part of this, the third promise. But it means that something changed internally. Now there is the will and also the power to follow me. I like the uh, poem that is attributed to John Bunyan. Uh, there's some debate as to whether he really said it or not, but there's a poem that really makes a lot of good sense. Just a couple of phrases here. It's a, it's a comparison of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So it says this, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings it bids us fly and gives us wings. In other words, the law could tell you what to do, but it couldn't give you the power to do it. Now God putting His laws within your heart by the Holy Spirit gives you the willingness and the power to do it. That's the change. That's the better promise. No, it doesn't mean we're sinless. There's still going to need, there's going to, need to be forgiveness but the motivation and the ability has changed. Now it comes from within. And that's why obedience to God is an indication of a real Christian, somebody that actually has been changed. The inner change of the heart will lead to obedience, even though we struggle in it, in this flesh, which isn't 100% entirely changed. You know, we still have that battle going on, but that willingness, that yearning, that desire, that inner desire to follow God, that has to be there. That's, that's a sign that you're in the new covenant, that He's done this to you. Here's the second promise of the new covenant. Each person will know God personally. You'll know Him personally. Verse 11, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. They will know me. See, under the old covenant, people knew God from a distance, but in the new covenant, we will know God intimately. We will know Him personally. They saw God's mighty works under the Old Covenant. They, they had seen the plagues in Egypt. 
They had seen the water part through the Red Sea. They had gathered manna in the wilderness. Psalm 103.7 says, The Lord made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. But as time went on, they forgot all that. The collective memory of God's activity waned. Their hearts were moved on to other things and to other gods. And Judges 2.10 says, There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. And so they had to be continually exhorted by priests and by prophets, know the Lord, because they didn't know the Lord. He was becoming a complete stranger to them. Not so in the New Covenant, because God puts His Spirit within us, and the Spirit of God within gives us a personal knowledge of God, especially as Father. Galatians 4, 6 says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And you know who else cried, Abba, Father? Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what Galatians 4, 6 is saying is that you, because you're in the new covenant and the Spirit is within you, you have the same father-child relationship as Jesus has with the Father. It is that secure. It's that real. And the Spirit helps you to know that is the case. This subjective awareness, I am not alone in this world. I have a Father. And that Father knows me. Galatians 4.9 says, You have come to know God, or rather, be known by God. <laughs> you are known by God so intimately. The hairs of your head are numbered. He knows when you sit down and when you rise up. Psalm 139, all these things that God is to us. He knows and we know Him. Imperfectly, because it's clouded with our own distraction and unbelief and history, and baggage, and all these things that make it hard for us to know Him. But that father-child relationship is there. And that personal knowledge of God is always available and always growing as we seek Him in His Word and in the company of other believers who are seeking Him. So that's what's different. He resides within is that not relevant to our life full of trials? Isn't the hardest thing in the world to face life alone and unknown? Or alone and seemingly abandoned and orphaned, just you against the world? But if you're in the new covenant, you're not alone. You're not unknown. You have a father. And he knows you and what you're going through. And he's right there. Right there with you. Here's the third promise of the new covenant. God will forgive all our sins. Verse 12. I will be merciful. I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will 
remember their sins no more. That wasn't completely a new concept or desire in God. That didn't start in the second covenant. Even when God revealed his glory to Moses on the mountaintop, he proclaimed, The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's from Exodus 34. In fact, even under the old covenant, people were ultimately saved by believing that about God, <laughs> that he is merciful, that he is forgiving. But what's different about the new covenant is that this mercy and this forgiveness for sin is unqualified. It's written into God's side of the agreement. He promises he will be merciful to our iniquities and he will remember our sins no more. The mercy and the forgiveness doesn't depend on us. It is not written into our side of the contract. It is written into his side. I will do this, God says. The forgiveness depends on my faithfulness, not yours. Your only job is to receive it by faith. Your only job is to trust in my Son who made atonement for your sins on the cross. That's the only condition on your side of the agreement. And that means whatever wrongs you've done or are doing now or will do in the future, He will not remember them against you because you are in Christ by faith. Now, does not remembering your sin means that he has forgotten your sins? I've heard it said that way. That's not true. God does not have, have amnesia. God knows all things, past, present, and future, and all things possible and potential. He is all-knowing. It means something better than forgetting. Not remembering means that God says, I know your sins, but I will never remember them against you. I will never condemn you for them. They will never sever this relationship between us. That's way better than forgetting. Because if he just forgets, he might remember one day. But he says, I know them, but I won't remember it against you. They won't be offensive anymore now because why? Because there's a high priest who dwells by my side with nail marks, a mediator of a new covenant. God knows more than our sins. He knows the high priest. And Jesus said, he called it the new covenant in my blood at the Last Supper. All is forgiven for those who are in the new covenant by faith in Him. So count on it, rest in it, be at peace about it, that God promises, I will be merciful to your iniquities. I will not remember your sins against you. That is His promise to everyone in the covenant. I just want to close with this question. Which covenant most describes your own relationship with God? Do you feel like you're still operating under the old covenant, trying to be a good person so that God will be good with you? 
I guarantee you there's no comfort in that direction. (laughs) Because our obedience is never good enough to remain in good relations with God. We don't have it in us. We don't have a clean record. And that covenant is obsolete. God would have each of us embrace the new covenant. Good relations with God, the promise of His fatherly care in all of life requires only one thing, that we trust in the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. And if that is your trust, then all the rest of these promises are yes and amen. He gives you a new heart. You have a personal relationship with Him as Father. Your sins yesterday, today, and tomorrow are forgiven. You will never be alone or unknown. You will never be an orphan dealing with life by yourself. Whatever you're afraid of happening to you when you leave this building today or 10 years from now, God says, I'm your father. I know about that. And I'm going to get you through that. You're not alone. That is how we find peace and confidence in today's trouble. Let's pray. We need you to sink that into our minds, Lord. I guess that's why we need four chapters. We can't get it all in one shot. In fact, we can't get it all in four chapters. We have to have a whole book. And we have to have the continual ministry of your Holy Spirit. And we have to have the continual presence of your body, the church, to help us along the way. And so thank you that you've given us so many avenues of grace by which we can be transformed and renewed and built up and be at peace, how we can face the future with confidence and courage and know we aren't alone, we aren't unknown. All is well. The future is good for us because we're in covenant with you, the eternal God. I pray that you would work that into each of our hearts today. In Jesus' name. Stand and sing of the goodness of.